This last week, I read a book that raised a question that I guess I've confronted as a pastor for all of my life. Perhaps you have too. It's the question, what kind of love really motivates my behavior? C.S. Lewis says there's two kinds of love. There's need love, which is devoted to the satisfaction of my needs, and that drives many of us. And then there's gift love, which drives us to satisfy the needs of our neighbor. And that these two, for the Christian, need to be in balance. Uh, we cannot love our neighbor if we don't love ourselves. That's why Jesus said we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, not uh, in place of ourselves. The problem with many evangelical Christians is that we have not done a very good job discussing either kinds of love because many evangelicals uh, really are on a sort of self-hate trip. We, we've never quite understood the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. So we are very good at guilt and good at our own understanding our personal sin, but not understanding our value that Jesus died for us. That makes us valuable in his sight. And then the other side of us is that in our society, uh, self, uh, the kind of love that goes to uh, self easily gets out of control. Uh, the problem is that we can get overly ambitious, we get driven, uh, we, we get a desire for future security, we compete, we're pressured to compete, and, and that kind of self-love just gets totally out of balance with gift love so that our neighbor and their needs are sort of dissolved and we concentrate, we become self-obsessed. So the trauma that we have as Christians, and this is not a new subject, we're just taking a new look at it today through the table of Jesus Christ, is to find a balance between healthy self-love and, and gift love for a neighbor and to keep those in balance. That's, that's the message here today in our text. Jesus models in an incredible way gift love. And I was impressed that this was the last thing he wanted to leave with his disciples before he was going to leave them. He could have said a thousand different things, but he gives them this message and he gave it in the form of a drama. So he, he, he the God of the universe, washes their feet. I'll never understand that. I've preached about it. I've studied it. I don't understand how God could love you and me that much. And when he chose to come here, he chose to get at our feet. That's beyond me. It's a mystery but it's there. I want to ask you a question in light of this drama that we all know so well. Can my commitment to Jesus enable me to put aside the primacy of my own needs, need love, relinquish my narrow expectations and agendas of self-fulfillment so that I become free to give gift love to meet the needs of others? And then another question that goes along with that, that we sort of ask at least unconsciously, if I do care for others, will there be anything left for me? Is there a payoff, or is Leo DeRocher right, as our society believes he is, that nice guys finish last? This is a critical question, because I believe the very future of our society depends on the answer that we give. Jesus gives us a new vocabulary at his table, and I want us to think about it today. It's radical. He says, mine becomes yours, getting becomes giving, and ruler becomes servant. So as we prepare for communion, with all that said about need love and gift love, 
Let's go in and see what's the meat in this passage, perhaps for your life and mine today. First, Jesus reminds us we are each other's keeper. As Christians, we cannot live on that very modern and well-practiced premise, I won't worry about my neighbor's needs and I won't ask him to worry about mine. It's this very philosophy of selfishness gone wild, self-love gone wild that's destroying society. And many of our best thinkers, even in the secular world, are saying that's so. Paul the Apostle tells us that as Christians, we're not our own. We have been bought with the price of the blood and body of Jesus Christ. And if you are a Christian today, you're saying, he bought and paid for me. I'm therefore not on my own to do as I please. I am his servant. I think that we say that, but I think we're all on a journey to really grow in our understanding of what it means. Paul said, if because that's true, have this mind, the mind of Jesus, this self-giving mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, having the same love. Now, isn't that mind-blowing? This kind of self-giving love we're called to have for each other, counting others better than yourselves, look each of you not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's the Christian philosophy. Perhaps Jesus summarized it when he said, whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. I don't think society considers greatness as servanthood today. Lewis Mead says there's really two kinds of people. There's promise keepers and there's self-maximizers. Eugene Peterson rightly affirms that our society rewards self-maximizers and it penalizes or almost scorns promise keepers. Self-maximizers are those people who desire more all of the time. They're insatiable. They want to be on top no matter what it's the top of. They're people who live without boundaries, without limits. They're only law being those they create themselves that bring them pleasure. A self-maximizer is one who gets ahead regardless of the price, takes care of me first, and grabs everything that's there while they can get it. Their premise is, I've got to take care of me and prepare for my future because no one else will. And we get so busy taking care of me and my future, the neighbor is kind of just an obstacle in the way. Bill Hybels talks about this obsession with self, and I, I think he puts it so well. He said, you can't take a pill for it. You can't work it out in counseling. You can't solve it through biofeedback. It's a disease from hell, deeply rooted in the human heart. And without radical measures, it will drain the fulfillment of our lives and cost us our souls for eternity. I believe that's right. I think that's what Jesus is saying. And the problem with us as modern Christians is that we believe when we talk about giving ourselves away and self-denial and crosses that we're talking about a loss of joy. And it's quite the contrary. To the degree we are obsessed with self, we're losing our joy. The only possible permanent joy in the world is to do what Jesus did, and that's to love as he loved. But we don't get it. Jesus calls this radical lifestyle a life of self-giving, and he says, if we want fulfillment, if we want meaning and joy and success in the eyes of the only person in the universe that matters, and that's God, then we've got to give ourselves away. We can't save ourselves up. 
And how do you do that? Well, it's the thing you've been hearing since Sunday school. You put the needs of others ahead of our own. We become promise keepers no matter what the cost. When things get tough and we've made a covenant, we don't follow the world saying, well, it's no fun anymore, so I'm going to bail out no matter who gets hurt. We hang in there. And then it's a, a promise keeper is one who also refuses to try to run the lives of those around them, knowing that that's God's business. Now, I, I'm preaching today on a subject that's an old, old story with a new sense of enthusiasm because I believe a new wind is blowing in secular society. We're all understanding it. We're reading it. And that is that what started in the 60s as a so-called revolution of new freedom where we began this wonderful premise of everybody living by their own values, the consequences of a life without values is now coming crashing around us. So that even the most liberal mind will say, I don't think that's quite working. It's creating chaos. Uh, you see, self-indulgence, first of all, is leading to not joy, but misery, to escapism, to chaos for the individual who practices the so-called freedom. And then look at these consequences. Perversion, unwanted pregnancies, violence, political scandal, family breakups, boredom, despair, drugs, you list it, violence in the cities. These are all symptoms of exposing and pushing to the farthest edge of the envelope our obsession with self. It doesn't work. I heard something very interesting from an assistant secretary of state, former secretary of state down at Fuller. He says, America is at the crossroads between what, ha what started in the 60s and has come here now. And he says it's this. He said, we will either have a spiritual revolution that will bring people back to value keeping, to live within limits, to live within boundaries, or we will lose our freedom in order to protect our personal security. And he says that it's happening today where people are so frightened of their own personal security that they will give away their freedom in order to assure it because society is becoming a jungle. Well, we've heard many people say that, but these are secular minds saying it. So I, I think it makes communion today and this subject more than just a Sunday sermon. It becomes really an alternative for a nation of which direction we're going to go. And the question is, who begins the change? Somebody started the change in the 60s. Who's going to start the change in the 90s? I feel, what better group than us? If we claim to know Jesus... And if we really claim that we want his lifestyle and we want to follow his kind of, of love-keeping, uh, well, what about us? So let me ask a question as we prepare for communion. How are we doing in modeling gift love? The kind Jesus gives to us at an enormous cost to himself. The kind that puts self to the background and elevates the needs of a neighbor. If we played a tape recording of your conversations last week, would anyone listening to your tape know you belong to Jesus? Uh, would there be infectious concern for another person beside your own needs and security? Would there be tenderness and compassion for somebody else's mistakes and sins and weaknesses? Would you have a passion for somebody's physical needs and their spiritual needs? Does that even come into our agenda? In this drama on his knees, Jesus reminds us he didn't come here to help us here in Menlo Park win over the competition be successful, to get on top of the pack and have a divine leverage through him to get there. He came to teach us how to love. 
to love in the way of giving ourselves away. What we're learning here is that if our primary agenda is self-love, our neighbor becomes nothing more than a competitor, either in the classroom or in business or in social circles. And that, then that makes our neighbor nothing more than an obstacle to be defeated rather than a person to be loved and cared for. You see, that's what's happening in culture today. If we don't love our neighbor, they're a competitor. They're in our way of getting what we want. So they have to be sort of eliminated. Harold Kushner in his book, When All You've Ever Wanted Isn't Enough, writes, Take advantage of other people. Use people. Be suspicious of everyone, and you're liable to be so successful that you'll end up far ahead of everyone else looking down on them with scorn. And then where will you be? You'll be all alone. Bill Hybels correctly writes, What concerns Jesus is upward mobility as defined by the world to promote ourselves, to advance our own cause, to push our own agenda at the expense of others. And the end goal is to arrive at the top of the heap with enough money, power, and material possessions to feed one's main objective, self-indulgence. And that's why God has a problem with the world's approach to greatness. He knows that self-indulgence, by its very nature, always leads to self-destruction. And what seems like a climb to the top, in a very real sense, turns out to be digging our own grave. Up in God's dictionary always means down. And I need to ask us, how do we hear that from our heads and put it into our hearts? I wonder if we really believe what this text is really saying. And I guess the way we find out if we believe it or not is, what have you been thinking about this week? How much has been devoted to your concern about your financial future, your position in the company, your position in a club, your position and mine? And I, I'm amazed as I, I've had to deal with this text is that I find most of my thinking and most of our conversations are pretty well devoted to self. And we're sort of a, a group of people who talk about how we're going to take care of ourselves. I seldom sit down in a group of people and hear about how can I use the blessings God has given me to help someone else. It's usually the old cliche. It's getting all we can and canning all we get. And that's the underlying philosophy of our life. The world says, take care of yourself. If we don't, who will? Follow your desires, avoid crosses, get, achieve, and then you'll be happy. And we say, well, well we know that doesn't work. We say it, but I don't think we believe it. Jesus says, serve others, pick up your cross, and I'll surprise you with joy. Well, personally, I believe Jesus, but I need to tell Jesus, help my unbelief. The story is told of one of this century's great heroes of self-indulgence. He's only one of me among many, but see if you can guess who it is. Most of us didn't really know the man, except for what we read. His life ended tragically and ironically. At the time of his death, he weighed 120 pounds, stretched over his six feet four frame. His entire body was color colorless, even his lips. His hair, beard, and nails were hideously long and unkempt. Many of his teeth were rotting black stumps on his arms and thighs and clustered tightly in his groin area were needle marks. He was a junkie, skin popping more than 20 grams a day. This the man who was the envy of a generation. During his life, he had it all. Power, money, fame, unlimited pleasures, the best looking women in the world. He gave himself unreservedly to self-indulgence. If ever a man had what it takes to be satisfied, the jealous public would say, 
It had to be Howard Hughes. What a, what, what a pathetic paradox. We envy him and people like him. The lives of the rich and famous. And if they're based on self-indulgence, intellectually we know it's misery, and yet we still want it. Ironic. Jesus says, in contrast, we belong to each other and our neighbor's need must become a priority for us. And the only reason we have blessings is that so we can share and make somebody else rich as Jesus, who was rich, became poor so we could become rich. John writes in his first epistle, little children don't love in word or speech, don't talk about it, but do it in deed and truth. Listen again to Rabbi Kushner as he describes the alternative to loving others. If we believe that in order for life to be good, we have to avoid pain, the danger is that we'll become so good at not feeling pain that we'll learn not to feel anything. Not joy, not love, and not hope. And that's what's happening to countless thousands in our society today. We are hardened. Becoming our brother's keeper is our Lord's prescription for joy and for obedience to God. And I need to tell you that life in the comfort zone can be downright dull. Life for the Christian, you see, is about the adventure of giving, not getting. Loving each other after the style of Jesus. That's why we're here, to learn how. It just simply means that we're on a lifetime journey, and I hope we find it sooner than later, that we can't save ourselves up. Life's meaning will be found in caring for other people. In his epistle, John says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Being our brother's or our sister's keeper is costly because it goes beyond feelings to action. Jesus will not let it stop at just feeling good in church. Friday night, our mission department gave a shopping spree over here in Garden Court of opportunity to get involved with hands-on mission in our community and the world. Gee, I, I hope you were here. And I hope that those of us who did see will, will, will get our hands somewhere involved in a way we haven't been before. You see, all our church can do is provide opportunity to help control self-love. But we, you and I have to choose to respond. And now I have a final question. How do we find the power to overcome our selfishness sufficiently so that the love of Jesus can become this motivating force in our life? The answer is that Jesus meets us in these elements of his body and his blood. I've concluded after preaching this sermon how many times throughout my life, there is no way I can love you or love anyone else as this text mandates. I fail constantly. In fact, I failed just this morning. I went over to Drager's. It's the only place early in the morning where you get a cup of coffee. And there was a fellow already there out parked on his box wanting something from me. And at first I viewed him just as something in the way. And my heart hardened, thinking, well, if he had worked like I work, he wouldn't have to be in that position. And then I forgot to say, but therefore the grace of God go I. And I thought, even before I come to preach this sermon, I've still got to work on it. The only way my selfishness will be controlled is through this table. And the only way your selfishness will be controlled is through Jesus entering your life in this mystery that we can't explain, we can only affirm that somehow Jesus can come and live and love through you and live and love through me. And only then will we perhaps make some kind of sense out of this mandate to give ourselves away. 
Remember that chorus we learned recently? I've been humming it often in the shower as Doug wants us to. It's Jesus on the inside, working on the outside. Oh, what a joy in my life. This, this table reminds us, don't be tempted by society's propaganda that self-love is the only philosophy that's going to really work in a real world. It inevitably will fail. Self-love is a myth if it becomes the dominating, motivating force in your life. But be reminded of these words of Jesus, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. And by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus didn't save himself up. Uh, he gave himself totally away. And those of us who take his name, we're going to spend a lifetime learning what that will mean for us. And I trust we've learned a new chapter today that we can now enflesh this next week. In fact, if your heart strings got tugged today, where because you ate of this table are you going to go out and serve somebody that otherwise you would not have seen or heard? I think probably God brought you here with a button to push. What are you going to do about it? Paul the Apostle said, I delivered unto you as of first importance what I also received, how the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had broken it, he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also, our Lord took the cup when he had supped, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink ye all of it. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you show forth the Lord's death, his self-giving until he comes. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord Jesus, we need this table because if we're honest, there is no way we can control our self-love. We're obsessed with self. It's fed every day in society. We need now your divine help. Lord, do the miracle this table offers, and that is to put Jesus in us so that he can work through us. To that end, use these elements to that miracle happening individually to us during these moments in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to ask you to hold the bread and we're going to eat it together as the family of Jesus Christ.